Almighty God, we pray that we may find the face of Jesus Christ in your word and be changed to live by his spirit in the days ahead. Amen. Do please sit. As I said earlier, the title for this series is Where We Began. Now, if you could look at your life in this past week, as someone else might look upon it, if you could put yourself in the shoes of someone who saw your life last week, would it be clear to you that your life had its purposes, had its beginning in the purposes of God? Did our lives present a puzzle to the world around us, a puzzle that can only be answered if Jesus Christ is the Lord of all that there is and if we live as his devoted servants? Because that is actually what Genesis 14 is all about. And before we do anything else, that deserves a little explanation. Do turn to it. We might as well um, have all the joys of Amraphel and Arioch and Kedolioma and Tidal, King of Goyim, in front of us. Well done, Peter, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I actually skipped out verses 1 to 7. It's kind of necessary for the story. I just didn't feel I could do that to anyone. <laughs> Though it does, it, it, does, it does mean that we missed out verse 5, the Zuzites in hand. Wouldn't you love to be a Zuzite? Doesn't that, doesn't that sound great? Wake up in the morning going, wow, I'm a Zuzite. But this is all about Jesus. The New Testament says it is. Uh, The letter to the Hebrews particularly focuses on Melchizedek uh, at some length, which tells us that we must never be distracted by the kind of flat level of reading this, as though it's only about Abraham and where he settled and what he did. We don't settle for that flat level, but, and this is very important, uh, it's not as though we gather waiting for the preacher to tell us a secret that we couldn't have got for ourselves. As though you need special knowledge. It isn't. It's a, it's a pattern of thinking. It's simply coming to the scripture with a determination and a recognition that it is, it is a unity. And so if it reaches its high point with Jesus, then all that comes before has to have been leading up to him, and all that comes after is about what happens as he exercises his lordship from on high. I've I've told it before, and I'll tell tell it again, but only briefly. You you know, the Sunday school teacher who um, uh, says, uh, I'm thinking of something brown and furry that lives in a hole. Uh, What am I thinking of? And the child puts out the hand and Gets, gets the answer and says, well, it looks, sounds like a rabbit, but the Sunday school, it's our Sunday school, so it must be Jesus. Um, there was a great insight in that little girl. It may look as though it's about a battle and Abraham and Melchizedek and the king of Sodom, but it's actually all about Jesus. Because if it isn't, we might as well tear out that page and say, well, we'll go to, we'll go to a book of fairy stories amongst which will now be this, for our little moral lessons in life. Uh, But we'll keep something else, perhaps the New Testament, to tell us about Jesus. This is all about Jesus. 
And there are a number of ways in which that could be true. Consider Abraham the warrior. Now, could we have our little map? Because we might as well explain some of this extraordinary story. Um, Right, now you've got a rough idea of the scale of that. Now, if you, um, if you, if you, come on, if you see that top of the arch up there, now if you drop down um, to sort of probably between these two lights, and I, I, I'm pointing now, but, all you can, but it's in the wrong space, but you know, kind of, that, 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 that's where these kings came from. Um, it's the territory that Abraham had actually left. Um, can you imagine how he felt? You know, I left there, and they're, they're after me. Well, they're not after him initially. But because there's desert in the middle, the kings have to travel all the way up to the kind of northeast and then drop down to Damascus. Now, Kedolioma, big king. Very, very important. Um, territory of Iraq now lives beyond the marshlands of Iraq. He's come a long way. Around here, well, actually around quite a lot of this territory, there are kings... Uh, ter- or uh, tribes who've been paying tribute to Kedolioma, kind of on a really sort of subtle basis that if you pay me tribute, I will not come and bash you up. But they've stopped paying tribute, and so he's coming to bash them up. So with a few friends um, uh, from pr- who are still pretty big kings, he comes and he has battles uh, here at Ashtaroth, comes down the uh, east of the, uh, the Dead Sea, uh, goes, we know says in the scripture that he has a, another battle here, has another battle here, and ca- another battle there. And around here, he meets the uh, little local chiefs uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah and the territory that you heard about uh, last week, I, I hope, um, of where Lot lives. This is very, very fertile territory, or certainly was then, and so it was very rich territory. It was quite able to pay tribute. That's why he was interested in it. Um, but it hadn't been paying. So he beats them up uh, around Zoar. And takes them captive, including Lot. And he heads up to the west now. There's another battle up there. Uh, and on his, he's on his way home. Abram, who's here around, uh, at Mamre, right near Hebron, uh, realizes what's happened. There's a, a refugee from one of the battle, comes and tells Abraham what's gone on, and he sets off in pursuit. And around Dan, he meets him, and with a very small army compared to what Kedolioma's got, um, he defeats him in battle. That's the geography. It's probably worth leaving up for a moment because there's, there's no other screen that needs to take its place. What we need to register is a couple of things. Kedolioma uh, is very, very uh, important. This is uh, a very big deal, what's going on here. This is international conflict. This is not just a little local spat. Now, you know, we, we may wonder what it is that warfare and battles and violence in the Middle East has got to do with us and our world today. But it actually, of course, has a great deal to do with it. It's true that Kedolioma would probably not have brought a huge army with him because he was expecting only minor resistance. And he was a very long way from home. So he was very extended. His supply lines uh, would have been very strung out. 
But they were still his army. They were a professional army of one of the biggest kings around. And Abraham's really got nothing. We know he's got 318 men born in his own household. Now, I don't know where you live, but that to me is a pretty big house. Uh, it, it was, of course, a, a tented household. So it is a, a huge clan that he's called out. And that's just the trained men, so there must have been others. But it is probably a much bigger army that he's dealing with. For him to win, it shows remarkable skill and considerable commitment to his own clan. You don't mess with Abraham. And we often forget Christ the warrior because the greatest battle of his life is one when he can't move anywhere, where you don't need maps and diagrams to explain. But a warrior he is. A great power has taken captives, you and me, and Jesus rides to the rescue to defeat that power and return us to life and to flourishing. Jesus is not less than Abraham. The battle that he fights is far greater, the force at his disposal far more immense. How he deploys that force is completely different, of course. By a supreme act of will, he chooses to lay down his life to win the prize, the redemption of those he loves. Nonetheless, a warrior he most certainly is. But it's not all that's to be observed here. Indeed, it's not actually where the the emphasis of the story itself lies. That's far more at the end with these mysterious interactions from verse 18 onwards. Now, some of this is really famous. Psalm 110 speaks of Melchizedek, the priest king of Salem, that is, Jerusalem. And the letter to the Hebrews picks up the thought, saying that Jesus is like Melchizedek. Jesus is in the line of David the king, but he's got no priestly line priestly line is that of Aaron. John, Jesus' cousin, connects to that line, but Jesus doesn't. So the, the history appears to say that Jesus is king, but hasn't got any line of priesthood. So the writer to the Hebrews, writing probably to those who are concerned about this, who say, how can Jesus stand between God and humanity if he's not in the line of priesthood? He casts around in the Old Testament, picks up the thought in Psalm 110, and says, ah, Jesus is more like Melchizedek, a priest outside the line of Aaron, but a real priest whose job is to stand between humanity and God. And it can't hurt that he is the priest king we we gather in Jerusalem at the time. Now, the end of this chapter describes a meeting when they've all got back you can, well, you can see roughly, see, there's, there's Hebron where uh, Abraham's living, but there's Salem. That actually may actually be closer in even than that. The distance, I think, is a little shorter than that. They're very close. The first meeting is with Melchizedek, king of Salem. Salem is occupied by the people of the land, the Canaanites, and Abraham has lived among them but lived among them as an alien. Nonetheless, he's lived among them with a promise that the land will one day be his and his descendants. He's allied himself to local chiefs. We hear about Mamre and Eshkol and Anna. 
but he has, possesses no land. He's got a household big enough to have 318 trained men in it, but he has no land. So these locals in Salem, they are not worshippers of the Lord God, Yahweh. Who is it they worship? Well, we learn from verse 19. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Uh, Melchizedek worships, and the city, we presume, worships this character, God Most High. And Melchizedek offers bread and wine. This is a city that did not enter into the battle with the eastern kings, but is probably very grateful that it all passed them by. And bread and wine are are the most um, precious thing that the land can afford. And what is surprising is Abraham's reaction to all of this. We might expect that he will object at this praise of a God who Abraham knows is not God. Don't get confused just because it's got God with a capital G. This is a different title. Uh, we know that Abraham has been called by the one, uh, the, the, the one that springs to my mind, end of chapter 13, Lord. Um, I, why it is that Protestant Bibles do this, I don't know. The Jerusalem Bible gets this right. Th- that's not the word. The word is the name of God, Yahweh. But because of an ancient tradition that you can't write the name of God, it's a Jewish tradition, it's not a Christian one, I don't know why, we insist on putting Lord in, cap, in small letters, in, in small caps like that. But that's a name, Yahweh. And God Most High is a name, Elelion. And Abraham knows that this is not God. And yet, Abraham goes on to give, uh, at the end of... Um, what Melchizedek has said, to give Melchizedek a tithe, the tenth of all that's been won. And that's not a kind of generous gift. The letter to the Hebrews knows that this is a required gift. It's the tribute of a lesser party, Abram, to a greater party, Melchizedek. So Abram's reaction is a puzzle. He's recognizing Melchizedek here. And it's a puzzle at least until we get to verse 22, when something extraordinary happens. And for the moment, I just want to focus on the words that he uses. What Abraham is about here is conquest, absolute, total, imperial conquest. And it's hidden in these words. The Lord, Yahweh, has promised him this land. He's not clear how the land will become his, but he's making a start by claiming the God of this land. I have raised my hand, verse 22, that is, he's sworn to, well now, who is it he's sworn to? To the Lord, Yahweh, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. As though he is saying, listen, let me tell you, Melchizedek, the God whom I know is my shield and protector, my covenant God who's made promises to me, Yahweh, that God is in fact the one you are worshipping as God most high creator of heaven and earth. My God encompasses and takes in the titles of your God. So I'm happy to pay a tribute of a tenth because I know there is only one God. And I choose to claim that behind your 
your claims stands my God. I'm very happy to give over my tribute, therefore, to the one that I know did in fact stand behind my victory, whether you've yet given him the full glories of his titles or not. If he wasn't aware of it before, Abraham has now been made aware that the one who is with him, the one who's made him the promises in Haran and brought him all the way down, is indeed not just a little local promising God for Abraham, but the one who is Lord of heaven and earth. But now let's pass on from Salem to Sodom. Salem, I imagine, was grateful that it had been passed by. But Sodom was in a very different situation. Because we get these two kings, we may forget Salem was the king, uh, uh, sorry, Melchizedek was the king of a territory, Salem, who'd not been involved as the great characters passed them by. But Sodom had been taken captive. And not in a very um, reputable way. We already know from uh, chapter 13, verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. We'll find out more about what that means later in Genesis. But they're not very good with their armies either. Uh, Verse 10 of chapter 14, now the valley of Sidon was full of tar pits, And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, well, between them, the kings of that territory had far more resources than Abraham did. So they were presumably just disorganized and fled. Some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. It was total chaos. So Sodom is something something wrong about Sodom. Sinful, uh, disorganized, uh, and yet... Uh, incredibly proud. The king of Sodom, who's just been rescued by Abraham, has the nerve to say, verse 21, well, give me the people and I'll let you keep the goods for yourself. That's not how it worked. Abraham's just won, so he owned the king of Sodom at that point. Abram won. And by all the ancient rules, that meant you belong to me now. If Abram had chosen to, he could have said, okay, no, as from now, you're going to be a slave in my household. But the king of Sodom has the nerve to say, give me the people, and I'll let you keep the goods. Abram's response is unbelievably gracious under that uh, provocation. He says, no, I'm not, going to keep, uh, I'm not going to keep anything that belongs to you. You can, you can have that. All I am uh, going to do is I'm going to keep a share uh, for, uh, of the stuff uh, for what my men have eaten. That needs to be replaced. And then the guys who came with me, who are of the land, uh, Anna, Ashkol, and, and Mamre, they need a share, but I'm not going to keep anything. And what we need to notice, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it, it's a lovely phrase, not even a thread or a thong, verse 23. Abram's response is gracious, but the important thing is that it is holy. Abram has not got a square inch of land. Why not? 
because he's waiting for it. He knows it's going to be handed over by God, by a promise. And he will not allow any situation to arise. At this point, he's going to get some things horribly wrong in in the next chapters, in the next weeks. But right now, at this point, he's absolutely clear. I am going to hang on to the promise, and I will not let anyone trample on the promise by allowing themselves to think that they made me rich. God is going to make me rich. Let me tell you, the king of Sodom, um, I, 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 I am actually going to own all this territory because God has said so. Um, and I don't want you thinking that you gave it to me or any part of it to me. Not a thread, not a thong. I will be the uh, lord of this territory because Yahweh has promised, uh, not because you've done anything. And those two responses, Salem and Sodom, give the shape to everything that we need to take away many thousands of years later from this story as the story of where we began. A story that has to be all about Jesus if it's to make sense to us. It is not a moral story about being a good idea to keep 318 trained men in your household. Or the importance even of tithing. Gosh, I wish it was. But it's about Jesus. And in two ways. First, Abraham realizes in this story, if he didn't before, that this God, his God, is the God of heaven and earth. He would have known something surprising. He knew from his, the world around him that gods were local. And a God who promised in Haran, far to the north of, of this, but was still promising in Canaan, that was already a huge shift. But he hadn't yet got to saying, oh, this is the God of heaven and earth, and yet it is precisely what Abraham realizes by the end of this story. The only God that there is, is not just his, but Lord of the whole created order. There is no limit to his being God. And our claim is that this same God was at work to bring Abraham's promise to completion when Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven as universal Lord. It is not a different God, but it is our God. We may find ourselves from time to time inviting others to recognize that the God they've known is in fact made known completely in Jesus Christ. See Acts 17. Or come along to the uh, events of that weekend with Arab World Mission. We may sometimes oppose, we may sometimes agree, but the heart of the claim is that this God is the one universal God of heaven and earth. And this is the first time in the scriptures that that's recognized. But we have heard God's last word on the subject when we have heard the name Jesus Christ. So when you encounter those of different views, go to this passage, go to Acts 17. And go to those passages with confidence that the one you know as Jesus Christ is the one who encompasses and takes in all the other titles, even though others may not know it yet. Secondly, the promise is for Abraham and all his descendants, 
But what he, must, what he gains by promise, he must gain by promise. He will accept not a thread, not a thong from Sodom. He lives among them, and yet is separated from them. He has no land. He is fully committed to them. Imagine the commitment you have to have to set off after an army. You're risking your life, you're risking the life of your family. That is commitment. He's fully committed to them. But he's not obliged to them. He's not going to be distracted by their capacity, very real capacity, in the case of Sodom, to make Abraham rich. He's amongst them, using their land, their warfare, but he remains the devoted servant of the Lord God, Yahweh. And that tells us so much that we need to know. Week on week, we may listen to stories of Jesus and think, well, that's all very well, but it doesn't tell me much about how to deal with the cuts in my office, how to deal with the members of my family going off the rails, how to deal with my hope to spend my life with this person. No, it doesn't. And we might think that the stories of Abraham will tell us even less, but look at how Abraham lives. In this story, he is in their world, but he is not of it. And that's all we need to know as a people of promise. He is utterly committed to them. He's not, above, he's not standing far off them. He's willing to risk his life for them. He's utterly committed to them, but he isn't captured by them. And so I can return to that initial question. Did our lives present a puzzle to those around us? A puzzle that only makes sense if Jesus Christ is Lord of all that there is, and if we live as his devoted servants. The answer in my case is probably not. The answer in your case is probably not. Well, maybe a little. But Abraham is a summons to us from the Lord God Yahweh, God the Most High, creator of heaven and earth to live out that puzzle before the world in all its odd glory. I, I, we go to hundreds of different places tomorrow. Some of us will be going on holiday. It probably is literally at hundreds of different places. But wherever we go, we go as those who are utterly committed to the world around us and yet not captured by it. Jesus Christ is Lord and the life on display over which he is Lord is the one we bring to the world tomorrow and tomorrow and the day after that. Let's pray. Lord, these stories are far away and long ago. We know that uh, violence in the Middle East is uh, continuing. Why shouldn't it? Violence in our own hearts continues. 
But we ask that in the middle of a world where violence is normal, where strife and conflict are the very warp and woof of how life is constructed, we may stand as those who bear witness to Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, and to ourselves as his devoted servants. For we ask it in his name. Amen.